Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Good morning, good afternoon, St. Michael's Episcopal Church, and whoever else happens to be listening today, you are listening to episode 56 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts, a podcast we started in March of 2020, right when the pandemic hit to keep us grounded theologically and also calm and at peace as we were wading through the pandemic. And whenever we started this podcast, I thought we'd do about five, six episodes max, and we'd all be back to our normal life. But uh, here we are with episode 56. And um, right now we're doing something really fun where we are featuring our Lenten series speakers. And today we have uh, a great speaker, but more than that, uh, a mentor and a dear friend, the Reverend Jimmy Bartz. Jimmy is the rector of St. John's in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, before that, he served as the head pastor for an emergent rock and roll church plant by the name of Fads in Santa Monica, California. Prior to that, he was at All Saints Beverly Hills as an associate rector And where I met Jimmy for the first time was at his first job, right out of seminary. He was the campus missioner to the University of Texas. And uh, before we get to Jimmy, just a little side story. You know, I I don't think it is too strong of a statement to say that I am here right now with you because of Jimmy Bartz. And that's true for a lot of different reasons. But one of those reasons is because I got a phone call out of the blue whenever I was 18 years old and about to head to college from the newly appointed chaplain at the University of Texas inviting me to church. And that chaplain's name was Jimmy Barks. I happened to pick up the phone. He invited me to come meet with him and to join his community. Uh, I did. And I was instantly taken, not just by Jimmy, but by the quality of Christian community being fostered under his leadership. And since that time, I have looked up to Jimmy. Um, I have you know, transitioned from seeing him as only a mentor to seeing him as a colleague and a friend, even though he still is a mentor. And whenever I was going through the process um, to come to St. Michael's Episcopal Church, Jimmy was not just a source of wisdom to help me discern that, but also one of my references. And so to be with Jimmy today uh, is a great joy and an honor. And so Jimmy Bartz, welcome to St. Michael's Episcopal Church. We're so glad to have you. I'm really glad to be here. Um, And I am also remembering that you were one of my references for this job. So (laughs) it all works out, doesn't it? (laughs) Sort of paid each other back for that. Um, (laughs) And I suspect your community already knows that uh, you filled the role of university missioner at the University of Texas um, some years after you and I were there together. And and that's such a great part of our story. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, maybe that not everyone who who's listening here 
knows that you and I share a very close friendship and that extends well beyond um, professional collegiality. So I'm, I'm really happy to be joining your community again. I've had one, one chance to preach at St. Michael's when um, you were new or relatively new to that community. And, and I'm glad to be back. I wish we were doing this in person, but you know, we're not. So let's do it this way. Well, we're glad to have you and I'm looking forward to your reflection in our conversation. So what I want to chat with you, y'all, about this morning is this phrase that has been popping up in my reading as I've scoured the Gospels over the past year or so. And it's one that has captured my attention in the past, but it's um, it has just very recently grabbed my a hold of my heart in a new way. And, and it's one of those phrases in the gospel that I think to some degree feels quite religious. Um, and maybe it's one of those lines when we're studying scripture or listening to it read in church or um, paging through in a devotional, it's, it's maybe something that we read past because we don't really exactly know what Jesus is talking about when he uses it. But I, so, and, and so that's the point of, of bringing this into our conversation as a source of our reflection this morning. And that phrase is something that we hear in, in the first Sunday in Lent's gospel, that early a chapter in Mark where Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan by John. He moves out of that baptismal experience um, into the wilderness where it says that he is tempted for 40 days, but also attended um, by angels and, and wild beasts. I love the fact that um, the wild beasts are included there. And part of my personal practices to push myself into the story to try to experience scripture in a, in a present-minded way. And so when, when I was reading uh, this first chapter of Mark over the course of the last couple of weeks, I was thinking about Jesus being attended by uh, the bison and the grizzly bear and the badger and the mule deer and the elk as he's out there in the wilderness as those are creatures that um, range all around this beautiful place that, that I now call home. Um, after he emerges from this experience of being tempted and uh, in the wilderness, he, his, his words are very specific. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Um, believe in the good news. That's the advice that he gives coming out of this experience. And it's that phrase, the kingdom of heaven has come near, um, that I want to chat about and, and, and make the focus of our reflection, because it's such an alive and, and dynamic line, um, but maybe a little misunderstood, or perhaps we scurry by it because we don't know exactly what he means by that. And I want to help us settle in on an understanding of this line, um, especially as it relates to us 
both enduring this pandemic, um, but also beginning uh, or emerging through the second half of the season of Lent. You know, this is a phrase, the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is a phrase, or at least a variation of a phrase that's used all throughout the gospels. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come near. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says the kingdom of heaven is now. So having a deeper sense of what he means by that, I think could be helpful as we seek to embody the faith. And I want to be specific about what I mean by that. I don't look at uh, my life as a Christian person. Um, I, I don't I don't direct the trajectory of my faith as a Christian person toward understanding the faith uh, more deeply. I, the, the, the trajectory of my life as, as a person, person of faith is to embody the faith, to live it out in, in, in the world. And of course, that includes some study, right? But it also is heavy on, on practice. So so I want to relate this idea of the kingdom of heaven has come near to how we embody the faith or how we live it out. And if you've been following along since uh, the, the first of the year, the beginning of 2021, um, the church is telling uh, the story of Jesus in a very particular way, especially over the course of the last couple of weeks as we migrate from the season of Epiphany and into uh, into this, this Lenten season that we find ourselves in right now. So, so there's a detail in the story uh, that gets repeated. It was repeated um, for the, the last time on the first Sunday in Lent this year. Um, we've already talked about how Jesus finds himself um, in the in the uh, in the Jordan River with John, um, and and at his baptism, we know we hear this voice, this voice that from heaven that says, "This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased." And maybe you remember, or maybe you don't, but this is the third time that we've heard um, this particular identifying sentence uh, from Jesus in the way that the church tells the story. We have it in Epiphany at the baptism of our Lord as we fast forward to that last Sunday in Epiphany. Um, we have that wonderful story about uh, the transfiguration. Jesus climbs the mountain with the, the executive suite of the disciples there. He is, his clothes become a dazzling white. He is transfigured. And we hear that same line repeated. This is my son, the beloved in whom I am well pleased. And then finally, we hear it again when we hear the retelling of the baptismal story uh, on, on the first Sunday of Lent in, in this particular year. And so I've, I've been scratching my head a little bit and, and, and asking myself, what is the church trying to tell us uh, through the telling and retelling of this story in such near succession one to another. 
so, you know, we scratch our heads a little bit and we open our hearts a little bit and, and, and we begin to grapple with this, this sentence, this, this uh, identifying descriptor of Jesus. This is my son, the beloved in whom I am well pleased. We have a sense that God is saying to us as, as the church, as a people called out, as people who are trying to embody the faith, um, if, if you feel at all confused about who this person is, I want to let you know that whether he is down in the river bottom um, with a group of spiritual eccentrics, or if he is up on top of a mountain with his nearest and dearest, that, and to use Eugene Peterson's translation of the phrase, which I love, if you have any question about who this is, this is my child, chosen and marked by my love, the delight of my life. So the church is telling us this story in, in, um, in, in very close proximity again and again from one, from one story to the next, though the, the story spans over, over nine chapters. So, so we ask ourselves, you know, what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, we know that it, we, we can, those of us who are in the church speak pretty fluently about who Jesus is and the way that we tell the story in the church is that we say that he is the son of God, right? Jesus is the son of God. All of us, whether we actually believe or agree with the church mothers and fathers or with the story itself, we have some sense that this is how over the centuries, over these two millennia, we have come to describe and to know Jesus of Nazareth as the son of God. It's interesting to me, though, and I think it's important to note, especially as we move toward trying to find an understanding of what this sentence, the kingdom of heaven has come near, actually means for us. And I'm going to get back to that. I know that it seems like I'm off on a tangent right now, and I might be running a little uh, Da Vinci Code-ish kind of, kind of track through the story, but I, I'm on to something here. And I, I, and I want to say, so it, it's, it's quite obvious for us that Jesus... Um, is the Son of God. Those of us who are, are raised in and immersed in um, the theology of, of the traditional Christian church, we're comfortable with that. But what's interesting to me is the descriptor that we leave out, um, and that is we don't oftentimes identify him as beloved. Um, and, and the sentence is clear about that. And to give the church a, a, a little credit or even, even the Apostle Paul a little credit, perhaps it's assumed, right? Perhaps um, we think that uh, when we say Son of God, that each person who hears that assumed that this child uh, is beloved of God. But I think it's an important note for us to make. So we have some sense that the church has given us this story and really compressed these three experiences um, into, a, into a, a moment for the church as we approach Lent and then as we enter Lent, um, we have an idea that, that we're being pushed toward 
a deeper understanding of the identity of Jesus, and we find ourselves um, leaning toward an understanding that Jesus is not just the Son of God, but the beloved Son of God. So I want to add another piece in here before we move back toward this idea of the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the piece that I want to to, to, to bring up as we continue our, our reflection here is that even though we have this, um, this identifying descriptor of Jesus compressed into three weeks out of seven in the way our church tells it, in the way the story tells it, there is another identifying descriptor for Jesus. And in fact, Jesus, it's one that Jesus uses about himself that I think is important here. Um, as we move deeper into the Lenten season. And it just it's just one chapter away um, from this experience of Jesus being baptized and, and tempted and, and then coming out of the wilderness into uh, his ministry. So it's, that happens in the first chapter. In the second chapter, Jesus uses this title uh, for himself. He describes himself as the Son of Man, or perhaps in our postmodern context, we would, we would say that he is the son of humanity um, rather, this, rather than the son of man. So we have some sense that there are these two strong descriptors, um, one chapter apart of, of this new descriptor, son of man or son of humanity. It's one that appears um, over 80 times spanning um, each of the four Gospels and Acts, we have some sense that, that Luke and Acts are a single piece of work delivered in two volumes. And Jesus uses this title for himself, or it is used to describe him over 80 times. So as, as people who are trying to embody the faith and deepen our understanding of who God is in the world and how God acts in the world, we have a sense that Jesus himself is both the Son of God and the son of humanity. Uh, and, and we remember that we drop a descriptor there. Not only is he uh, the son of God, but he is beloved. So, so what I am looking at as I move toward this second half of Lent in my own faith practice, as I seek to embody the faith um, in, in a more meaningful way or a more productive way or a way that is more loving, um, I'm reminding myself, okay, um, not only is Jesus beloved, but he is also a lover. Jesus's primary work in the world is the extension of love. And that extension of love is manifested through care and nurture and teaching and leading. But love is the through line to this story. So let's bring it back a bit to um, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Um, this is something that Jesus says right after he's been identified um, as the beloved son of God, right before he describes himself as the son of humanity. So I see the story tracking, at least in the way that the church seeks to tell it to us. It wants us to have a deep sense of who Jesus is 
um, right from the get-go? Do we know that Jesus is is the beloved son of God? So there's this trajectory that's tracking um, through the way that the church tells the story that we have God and we have Jesus and we have humanity. God, son of God, the beloved son of humanity, humanity, as in we are the objects of Jesus's love. The through line to all this story, of of course, um, is is love. It tracks from God to Jesus to to little old you and little old me in that we are the objects of Jesus's love. So as I read, as I um, approach this this Lenten back nine, the second half of Lent, um, and I'm asking myself, what does the church want us to know about the story as we approach the story um, through through our church practice? What is the what does the church want us to remember about the story? I think it's that the church want, wants us to remember not just the identity of God, of God's son, but also our identity. You know, we can remember that Paul says to Corinth in that first letter that we are the body of Christ, or we remember the references um, that we are the brothers and sisters of Jesus, the heirs uh, of, of God's work in the world. The through line that I see is, is, is beloved. So, 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 so when I am reading that, that story that the church has delivered to us three times now, and I'm hearing, this is my child chosen and marked by my love, the delight of my life. I'm hearing that story tracked through all the way, not just to Jesus's identity, but to yours and to mine. And so as we uh, approach this second half of our Lenten disciplines, what's coming to my mind and my heart in, in the most pressing way these days is, is oh, okay, you know, we can, we can give up cookies um, or, or we can give up beer or we can give up sitting around the couch and and becoming more active. But what I see um, God trying to tell us, what I see Jesus trying to tell us, what I see the, 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 the beauty in the story and the way that the church tries to tell us is that if you're going to give up anything for Lent, for Easter, for ordinary time, for Pentecost, for Advent, for any season of the year, if you're going to give up anything, give up thinking you're anything less than a beloved child of God. That you're anything less than adored. That you're anything less than chosen and marked. I would want us to hold on to the idea that we're built from and we're built for love. And, and that's what we're meant to spread uh, as, as we are embodying the faith day after day, week after week, month after month, 
um, whether it's in the season of Lent or any other time of the year. I know that's an awfully complicated reflection, so I'm going to bring John back in now and see if through our conversations we might um, dust off some of the debris that's on top of it or shine a little light in, in the dark the dark places there. Well, Jimmy, let me just start by saying thank you. Thanks for that wonderful reflection about the kingdom's nearness and the identity of Jesus and how Jesus's identity and our identity are interconnected and how that's all tied to Lenten practice. I mean, it was it's really, really beautiful. I, I just want to start because um, you, you shared a lot and um, I, I don't want to go in order. I took a lot of notes on what you said, but um, I'm really taken, and I think there's a lot of power in this idea that the identity of Jesus and our identity are, are tied, and that, you know, Lent isn't about giving up Instagram or Netflix. You know, you can do those things, but that the real thing to give up is self hatred and any idea that we're something less than God's beloved. But right. I, I think that presupposes that we all have like some amnesia, you know, that like, you know, I mean, I think about God's. I think it's the third most frequent command in the Old Testament. God says, remember, like, remember who you are. Remember what happened when I liberated you from Egypt. Remember who you are and that this is one of our problems we forget. And so I'm wondering if if you could say a word about how in your own life, like, what does it look like? How do we tend to forget who we are? Um, Because the assumption is that we're often operating or embodying a much different identity that, you know, is false relative to the kingdom's nearness. What does that look like for you? You're asking me how I remind myself. Well, I'm asking you how you remind yourself, but I'm also asking what does it look like when we're, when we've just forgotten, like when we're kind of lost in our unconscious identity as something or someone else other than God's beloved, like, what does that look like? in the world? And what does that look like in your life? And how do you know, like, you know, do you have a WWJD bracelet you look at and say, okay, I need to remind myself, like what, how do we get better at catching ourselves to say, wait a second, I'm somebody else. I'm God's beloved. That's a great question. Um, So if, if, if having a sense of my own belovedness Um, And being really grounded in that God-given identity means that the kingdom of heaven has come near, um, that that I'm really living in the kingdom at that time. Um, Then when the kingdom of heaven is not near, what do I do? How do I get out? Like, what you know, what's going on here? Um, I think what I would say is I don't spend these days, I mean, I'm, I'm 50 years old, so I'm sitting kind of solidly in midlife. I don't spend a lot of time these days at creating strategies for rescuing myself. Rather, Mm -hmm. I am investing my time and my energy, my heart, my mind into creating relationships with people who see me for who I am and know me well enough, both my own brokenness, but also my light side. So that then when they see that I am lost, they might um, redirect me um, in such a way that I'm able to find myself 
in God again, in that grounded uh, place where, and, and then, you know, I am drifting back into the kingdom of heaven. It's, you know, yeah. it's then that the kingdom of heaven is now or that it's on the inside of me. Does that make sense? So I, oh, ab- Absolutely. Well, and I'm also hearing you said you use the word others. I mean, there's a lot of, because we only have a short amount of time for these reflections, there's more that we can't say than we can, but an assumption kind of underpinning everything you said, and that's embedded in the whole idea of love is community, that this is not like Jimmy Bart's work alone in his room apart from everyone else, but that this is work that we undertake in community. And that there's this paradox between this is our work. Like I have work that I must do, which is different from work that you must do. And yet, of course, the great paradox is like, we cannot do it without each other. Yeah. I think sometimes, you know, I've I've been here uh, for a little bit longer than four years. And, and this has been my approach to the work is to like, create those deep, strong relationships one to another that, you know, if we have intimacy and trust, um, then the work that we have to do in the vineyard, so to speak, will become evident and 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 maybe even efficient um, mm-hmm. if we are deeply connected one to another. And and I know that. So we have a staff meeting every Tuesday with our staff, and and it it's about two and a half hours long. So it's kind of a long meeting. Sometimes maybe it goes two. Sometimes it goes three. But a full hour of that meeting, and I think you've been a part of this, John. I have. Whenever is, I um, came up to be the chapel, the chaplain, the, the Transfiguration Chapel, I, I got to go to a staff meeting. Yeah. So, so we spend an hour or so reflecting on a piece of scripture or a line from um, a, a work of nonfiction or a lyric from a song or a stanza from a poem. And in that experience, we share our, our minds and our hearts one with another. We go grow closer to one another. And I think, you know, when I first came here, people were like scratching their heads a little bit like, well, I mean, aren't we supposed to be working? (laughs) Yeah. Like, oh, we're, we're working. Um, this is, this is hard, but it, but I do feel that the investments that we've made and, and that, you know, that's one of the professional ways that it happens, right? So for us, you know, those of us who, who sit in the, in the clergy chair, we build a team of staff around us or, or we build a congregation that we find ourselves in, in the midst of, um, but then it happens, um, organically, not without, intention it still takes intention but it happens um not in a professional setting in in our social lives and and boy that's been hard right for the last year um so i think we i we perhaps have been a little more lost um, because we haven't been as close to those people who've been able to to pluck us out or you know have us turn around and change our perspective and, you know, but but what's beautiful about that, um, and not beautiful about the situation, but um, that's that's just true. You know, it is true that our capacity to stay connected for many reasons in the past year has been diminished and that 
um, that there is a fatigue and a sense of disconnection that is the reality of life after a year of, you know, the pandemic, but kind of part of what I hear embedded, right, in this idea of the kingdom being near and that we are God's beloved is that rather than like beating ourselves up about that or lamenting, I mean, we, we can grieve, but part of our work is to say, well, we, we can have compassion on ourselves in that reality, that it's a little bit harder maybe to root our life more frequently in the kingdom's nearness because of circumstances outside of ourself diminishing our capacity to meet with the same frequency and quality as before the pandemic. And that, you know, there can be some, some self-compassion and some grace just acknowledging that reality because it's all of our experience. Yeah. I, yeah, man, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, um, I think for people like you and me, I mean, we know each other well enough to where we can Mm -hmm. make ourselves vulnerable around, um, we have pretty high expectations for ourselves and Mm -hmm. others have high expectations for us also. And, and so one thing that I should be clear about, um, is this idea of when I talk about embodying the faith, I don't, maybe you assume that I mean embodying the faith successfully, but I don't, (laughs) I don't mean that at all. I just mean trying. Um, you know, I guess I disagree with Yoda. Like I do believe try is okay. And I'm comfortable in being covered in grace, just immersed in it. And I'm, and I love when I am so deeply connected to that, um, that idea that I'm a child of God chosen and marked by God's love. And that I, and I don't say, I don't mean that to say that I'm careless or thoughtless or self-centered. I, I mean to say that, um, we are liberated to be creative in the way that we would both embody that beloved identity and also share it with others. Uh, So I I love this thread and it ties in for me deeply, this idea of trying to embody and and, and that of identity, because one of the, the places where I find that I often get confused and many people get confused in a deep, deep way is whenever we tie our identity to the um, to the successful results of whatever efforts we make, and so uh, it can look like a sense of perfectionism or success. But once our identity is rooted in our belovedness, um, our efforts do not come about. You know, they're, they're not about our identity. They're about um, learning, celebration, and discovery. And yeah. so if I try anything, or if we try as a staff or as a people, anything from a place of our belovedness, failure doesn't really have the sting to it because our identity isn't at stake, right? I mean, rather right. uh, learning and celebration and discovery just becomes the norm. And, and in, in, in the same way, if we try something and it goes kind of as we thought and it's the outcome we want, we don't overinvest 
you know, it's still about celebration. Oh, that was great. It worked out well, you know, it might not work out the same way next time, but, but you know, the, the successes aren't as, um, uh, as weighty and the failures aren't as big of a deal when our identity isn't at stake. And so trying to embody the faith, it's about discovery. It's about life with God. It's about celebration. Yeah. Play. Play. Yeah. There's also two words that I don't think I heard you say, but they really seem to be the foundation of it were beauty and mystery. Yeah. And whenever I think about the kingdom's nearness, right, the kingdom of God has come near. Part of what we are trying, at least as I heard you and as I read the scripture, is we are trying to see reality. We are trying to see um, that which is most true. Um, we're not trying to bring something into being through our own effort that's not going to be there if we can't do it, but rather um, we're actually trying to see God's world. And that also changes the trying, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I mean, the way that I've talked about that sort of spiritual practice of beauty finding is, is just saying eyes for the kingdom. You know, do we have eyes for the kingdom? We always do eccentric things for Lent where we mm -hmm. um, give a little token or a novelty or something. And, and uh, last year we sent everybody a, a pair of, of novelty glasses, just little fake, you know, clear glasses. Well, what's this for? Well, put them on. See if you don't see this, see the kingdom <laughs> of heaven before you, you know, and it's um, so there is, there are these, um, efforts that we undertake in the embodiment of the faith that are connected to spiritual disciplines or practice, the challenge for the higher achieving Westerner or American person is to disassociate those practices from achievement because um, they are not achievement based. Um, but they do result in a change of perspective. I mean, one thing that I didn't talk about, um, which maybe I, sh I should have, or we're, we're, we're talking about it now, but in that, in that line that Jesus delivers after he comes out of the wilderness where he's tempted. And I would say, you know, it's not so evident in Mark, but in the other accounts of the temptation, we know what he's tempted, what is tempting him. And that is, um, he's tempted to be somebody he's not. Mm -hmm. um, he like, well, why don't you go do this? Or why don't you go do that? And he's like, no, I think I have a sense of who I am. And that's, so he comes out of that experience of being tempted to be somebody that he's not. And he says um, to the people, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near, believe in the good news. And that word, we don't talk about it a lot in the Episcopal church because it has such history around it, such negative history, but that idea of, uh, of repenting, um, I look at it not as this like admonish yourself for all the things that you have done wrong. No, it's just like change your perspective. Mm -hmm. Look at things differently. Don't, don't analyze your life 
with the same lenses that you have been analyzing them with in the past. Um, so when, 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 when we are repenting, when we are changing our perspective on our identity, oh, I am not despised, I'm beloved, or I'm not small, or I'm not just this or just that, but I am beloved, um, that's, a, that's a repentance, an act of yeah. repentance um, well, that pays such a positive dividend into our lives. Well, and just kind of sticking with your definition of repentance, you know, a literal translation of the Greek. I mean, anytime we change our mind or see anything differently that enables our life to be more of an extension of love, that would be repentance. I I think about, you know, so, you know, one of the barriers, I think, as I listen to people um, is that. I, I mean, this is my personal thing, and you can tell me if you disagree, Jesus, or if you agree or disagree. Jesus once said, you know, truly, I tell you, if you give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, you will not lose your reward. And, you know, what he meant by that or what I take it to mean is that, you know, kind of along the lines of the Mother Teresa quote, you cannot do great things. You can only do small things with great love. And I think that one of the places we might need to repent or change our mind or change our way of seeing things is that the small things are huge opportunities to extend love into the world, starting with how we treat ourselves, with how we relate to people and our family and our coworkers, to whether or not we make eye contact and say thank you to whoever's bagging our groceries at the store. To I mean, like. We And I understand the deep importance of thinking through how we can be a healing presence in society. And that's, we don't want to overlook that. But I think that if we don't pay attention to the small things, our bigger societal efforts won't have the same quality of love they otherwise would. Not to mention, we won't be as happy. Yeah, I think about... Um... I mean, I would almost say to you, it's all small things, um, but I don't think that's necessarily true in the sense of, I think small things are like the threshold that we cross into um, kingdom living that gives us insight into bigger and bigger things. I'm thinking about one of the projects that we did here and I, I got a text, this is maybe three years ago got a text from a guy named Chip Marvin. Chip's a member of our church here and um, he's a pal and we were in a workout group together and it was a picture of a coat that was zipped up around a tree somewhere in Oregon, like a winter coat. Um, and, and it, the caption of it said like available, you know, if you're cold or something like that. And Chip's text said like, Hey, could we do something like this at St. John's? Um, and I was like, yeah, man, that's a great idea. Cause there are a lot of cold people in this Valley, you know, yeah. you don't ever see a kid, um, without a coat on, but what you see is a kid with five coats on, right. Know, a kid who really lacks that, that good winter coat, that staple in, in your, your wardrobe here that, that, that you know, if you don't have it, you're not flourishing for Mm -hmm. six months out of the year. It's just the way it goes. And so we started hanging these coats up around, um, around our campus and around other 
places in town where people congregate, the grocery store, shopping cart return, corral, the bus stops and stuff. And these winter coats just have a tag on them that say, if you need me, take me. It says, if you need me, take me in both English and Spanish. Um, and I have never seen a coat hanging around our church campus or any other place in town for more than 90 minutes. Wow. Um, and that's a small thing. I think I, I just, I think we've given over 250 coats in, in a town of 10,000 people, which is a pretty wonderful thing, but it's a very small thing, right? But what that's led to, John, is this conversation now about like, how could we give a warm winter coat to every school-aged child in Teton County? That was a conversation we were having a couple months ago. Now the conversation is, would it be possible for us to give a warm winter coat to every school-aged child in the state of Wyoming? I mean, that's different in Wyoming than it is in Texas, right? There are 125,000, about 125,000 school-aged children. So it's a task that might be accomplishable, but it started with the little things, right? Like, gosh, people are cold. How can we help them get warm? Yeah. Um, Wow. We could do it this way. Oh, we seem to have the resource for that. And um, so sometimes those little things are just little things and they stay lovely little things like seeing somebody come and read a tag and look around. Oh my gosh, I need this coat. Yeah. I need this to work outside and they take it. But would it be possible for us to extend that well beyond? Maybe it might be. Beautiful. Uh, Jimmy, I've, I've loved, loved this conversation. I loved your reflection. Um, is there anything, you know, that you have not said to the people of St. Michael's and either your, uh, your, uh, video reflection of this podcast that you'd like to say? Mm. I guess I would say, uh, in light of, of what we've all been through, um, over the past year or so, but not just the past year or so, because I think we've all known that human connection has been a little more hard fought um, in these last several years than it, than it has been perhaps in the past. I would just say um, that as you devote yourselves to God, to the embodiment of the faith, I would ask you to devote yourselves to one another. Um, and to really lean into that, um, to see what that means. And that work is slow and inefficient and sometimes frustrating, but I think it's the best work that we can do. That's perfect. All right. Last thing. And then, uh, and then you're free. Um, there's five questions I ask all of our guests at the very end of these podcasts and, um, just, a whatever comes to your heart, a one sentence answer um, to, you know, just put brief answers. Okay. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready? John Newton, five questions. Here we go. Jimmy Barnes. Number one, what are you grateful for at the moment? Uh, for my family in spite Wonderful. of the challenge of pandemic, we we've managed to have some fun. That's great. Number two, what are you less sure of given your experience of COVID-19 than you were before the pandemic? 
Hmm. I suppose I'm less sure of the need for us to sit shoulder to shoulder on wooden benches in a room facing in one direction. I know y'all don't, <laughs> I know y'all don't all face in one direction at St. Michael's, but we do here at St. John's. Awesome. And don't hear what I'm not saying. You know, I'm not saying I'm less convinced about church of people. Yeah. Call about, but uh, I'm not so sure about the wooden pews. I hear you. Okay. Number three, what are you more sure of now? I'm more sure of how important it is for us to be grounded in our identity as beloved. Great. Number four, what movie, show, book, or song has brought you sanity and or peace in the last year? <laughs> My daughter and I on our way to school have been listening to music that's positive on purpose. And there is a song called Sunday Best that's on the playlist um, these days. I'm going gonna, gonna to pull it up here so I can make sure I'm getting it right. It's by a band called Surfaces, Sunday Best. It's a little uh, electronic-y, but All it's right. super positive. We've been having a lot of little dance parties uh, at the house, so we'll put on Sunday Best tonight tonight um all right number five when you meet god face to face what do you hope to hear god say to you uh, i can't say this without crying okay um, i just want to hear you're my child chosen and marked by my love and the delight of my life that's what i want to hear jimmy thank you for being who you are your presence and ministry, it's mattered not just to me personally, and you haven't just blessed us at St. Michael's in a lot of different ways, but um, your presence in the larger world and church is an inspiration. And you're, a, a, again, just one of my best friends in the entire world. And Likewise. the fact that I have tricked people into paying me a salary to do this right now, I hope no one finds <laughs> out because I don't want it to end. But I love you, brother, and thank you for being with us. Love you, too. Adios, St. Michael's. Thanks for having me.